0: Greetings. We are continuing our discussion on the Christian doctrine of God. We have been talking about the Islamic challenges to the doctrine of the Trinity, a Christian response to these challenges, and how we need to focus the difference between Islam and Christianity on the character of God. We've talked about how the biblical portrait of God is radically different than the Quranic account of God. In the Bible, we encounter a God who is knowable. His actions in history reveal who he is. We encounter a God who wants to be intimate with his people. But we encounter a God who, when his people rebel against him, his heart is broken and shares in the suffering of the rebellion. The fourth characteristic of the God of the Bible I want to put my finger on, characteristics that are radically opposed to the Quranic image of God, is the topic of the love of God. Now, much ink has been shed on the subject of the love of God in the Quran. Many Christians mistakenly say that the God of Islam is not a God of love, but only of wrath. That's, that is a false assertion. Uh, there are many verses in the Quran that talk about the love of God. The, of course, there is no verse in the Quran that comes close to what the Bible says God is love, but there are many, many references to the love of God in the Quran. But there is one fundamental difference between the love of God in the Quran and the love of God in the Bible. According to the Quran, God loves the good, not the unlovely and the sinner. Many verses, I will just give you some quick references. Surah 3, verse 29. God loves not the unbelievers. Surah 3, verse 50. God does not love the doers of evil. Surah 3, verse 128. God loves the doers of good. And then, again, Surah 3, verse 140. Verse, Surah 3, verse 153. Surah 30, verse 44 says, God does not love the unbelievers. And then, so there are many verses in the Quran that say God loves those who obey him and obey the prophet, and God doesn't love you if you don't obey him. Nowhere in the Quran is God ever reported to love someone who does not love God first. That's a very, very important distinction. And never in the Quran is God's love ever used as a central motivating factor to draw people to God. So in Islamic theology, there is no mention of the unconditional love of God or unconditional grace. In Islamic theology, love is not viewed as one of the uh, key attributes of God. Now, in contrast to the Quran. The Old and the New Testaments record that God loves human beings regardless of their sin. In the Bible, we see God as the one who initiates love towards the people and also loves those who are his enemies. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. It's just one example of God saying to Israel, I didn't pick you because you were the best. You were, in fact, the nobodies of the world, and yet I decided to love you. In the New Testament, we are just overwhelmed with references to the love of God. John 3.16, a very famous verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. I love Romans 5, verses 6 and 8. Paul says, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One of my former professors makes this observation. God's love is unconditional. God doesn't say, I will love you if you prove that you deserve my my love and are worthy of it. I will love you if you first become a law-abiding person. No, the Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. God's love is the love of Jesus, who was the friend not only of the moral, religious, and socially acceptable people, but also the political revolutionaries, the zealots, dishonest business people like the tax collectors, the immoral people like the woman caught in adultery. Social outcasts like the Samaritans. There are no ifs or buts attached, uh, uh, no no, no ifs or buts, no string attached to God's love. God's love is unconditional. And again, in talking to Muslims about God, this is the key to understanding a host of issues in Christian doctrine. Why did God become man? Why die on the cross for our sins? unless we understand the unconditional love of God, it doesn't make sense. The difference is about the character of God. The last point I want to pay attention to is the holiness of God. We've talked about the nobility of God. We've talked about the intimacy of God with his people. Talked about the suffering of God in the sense that God is not indifferent to our sinfulness and rebellion, but he shares in our pain. We've talked about the unconditional love of God, and I want to put my finger on another key difference between the God of the Quran and the God of the Bible, and that's the holiness of God. Muslims often claim that despite all the emphasis on the love of God in Christian theology, it is in fact Islam that presents us with the loftier picture of God's compassion and mercy. According to Islam, God simply forgives human beings of their sinful acts when they repent. Muslims often view the biblical references to animal sacrifice, the shedding of the blood, the crucifixion on the cross, as influences of just pagan ideas. Because they said, no, God has told us in the Quran when we repent and ask for forgiveness, he forgives our sins. We just do good works, and uh, that's okay. We don't need atonement and sacrifices. This is corruption of the message of the prophets. I believe the key to this difference is the, is the concept of the holiness of God. As holiness, the holiness of God simply plays no prominent role in the Islamic understanding of God. Kenneth Cragg, the British scholar of Islam, one of the world authorities on Islam, points out the incredible fact that the adjective holy is used only twice in the entire Quran. Holy is used only twice in reference to God in the Quran. One hardly ever sees a discussion of the holiness of God in Islamic theology. I usually say in the one verse in Isaiah six, where the angels are saying, holy, 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 there are more references to God's holiness than the entire Quran. Um, Christian theologian by the name of Alan Coppedge makes this comment. It says the concept of holiness is seen at the heart of the picture of God in both Testaments. Emil Brunner writes, The whole of the Old Testament is the revelation of the holy God. Gerhardus Voss makes this observation. He says holiness is not just another attribute in the list of God's attributes. It describes everything about God, of who God is. E.F. Harrison makes this observation. It is no exaggeration to state that the holiness of God overshadows all others in the character of God as revealed in the Old Testament. Gustav Allen concludes, Holiness is the foundation on which the whole concept of God rests. Now, the biblical definition of holiness signifies two things. It signifies God's transcendence from the world God is above and beyond and separate from this physical world, and it also refers to the moral purity of God and God's character. It talks about it refers to God's radical separation from sinfulness. Karl Barth, famous theologian of the twentieth century, writes, "He says if Jesus Christ Himself is the revealed love of God, there is an end of divorce between God's grace and holiness." There is, no dif- there is no separation between God's grace and holiness. We must recognize and adore God, who is both gracious and holy. Gracious as he is holy, and holy as he is gracious. One of my former professors makes this insightful comment about the holiness of God. Uh, be patient with me as I read through this quotation. If God already loves and forgives us, why atonement at all? Why did Jesus have to die to reconcile us to God? Why did not God just say, I forgive you, and let it go at that? He says, we can catch a glimpse of the answer with an analogy in human relationships. Suppose that I have done something that betrays a friendship and hurts a friend. Suppose that I go to her to tell her how sorry I am and how bad I feel about it. And she says to me, that's okay, it doesn't make any difference, forget it. Has she forgiven me? What she has really said is this, I don't care enough about you to be bothered by anything you say or do. You are not that important to me. She also leaves me alone with the pain of my guilt, refusing to help me deal with it. Put it behind me and make a fresh beginning with her. Casual acceptance are not forgiveness and love. They are an expression of indifference and sometimes hostility. Real love and forgiveness means caring enough to be hurt, caring enough to put ourselves in others' shoes, and sharing their guilt as if it were our own. Real love and forgiveness are costly. Not in the sense that the guilty party must squeeze them out of the injured party, but in the sense that the injured party genuinely sympathizes with the guilt and shares his own pain. Why did Jesus have to die? Why atonement? Because God cares for us too much to dismiss our sin and guilt with a flippant, it doesn't matter. Because words were not enough, action was necessary to prove that God's love and forgiveness are genuine. Because God wanted to stand with us in the loneliness and alienation we bring on ourselves when we separate ourselves from God and other people. Because it is just when God comes to our side in our loneliness, alienation, and guilt that they are overcome. In the cross, God says to us, Yes, it is true. You have hurt and offended me, but I still love you. Therefore, I will make your guilt and its consequences my own. I will suffer with you and for you to make things right between us again. My professor used, used a story to relate this uh, truth to us. This says there was an evangelist one day and was talking about the atonement. And he said the evangelist had a glass, a dirty glass on the table. He had a hammer in his hand. And he said, we are like this dirty glass, sinful, and God's hammer you know, must break us, punish us. God is holy, and he must judge our sinfulness. And so he was bringing down the hammer to smash the glass. And just as he was going to smash the glass, he brought a metal plate, and bang, the hammer hit the metal plate. And so that, that metal plate was uh, supposed to symbolize what Jesus did for us on the cross but my professor made this observation. He said if he wanted to be more true to the biblical picture, if the evangelist wanted to be more true to the biblical picture, as he was bringing down the hammer to smash the dirty glass, he had to put his own hand under the hammer to protect the glass, not another metal plate. That's the doctrine of the Trinity on the cross. God is not punishing an innocent person so that he could get his anger out of his system and he could forgive us instead. God is not an abusive father who beats up one child so the other children could go free. God is holy and must punish sin, and he takes that punishment on himself on the cross in the person of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. He's the judge, passes his judgment, and he comes and takes that judgment on our behalf. And by faith in that cross, the spirit of that holy God enters us and begins to make us holy. None of this makes sense if you don't believe God is holy. It doesn't make sense if you don't believe that God is unconditional love. It doesn't make sense if you don't believe that God shares in our rebellion and suffering. It doesn't make sense if you don't believe God wants to be intimately related to you. It doesn't make sense if he's totally unknowable, distant, and beyond. So that's how I believe we should communicate the truth of God to our Muslim friends. God is not a solitary, lonely figure. God is a being in relationship from all eternity and he is inviting us to join that dance of the Trinity. Shirley Guthrie makes this comment. If we want to translate the ancient doctrine of the Trinity into language that is meaningful to us, we could say something like this. One God in three persons means one personal God who lives and works in three different ways at the same time. I'll repeat that again. If we want to translate the ancient doctrine of the Trinity into a language that's meaningful for us today, we could say something like this. One God in three persons means one personal God who lives and works in three different ways at the same time. Alistair McGrath makes this comment. He says, A helpful way of looking at the doctrine of the Trinity is to say that three essential models must be used if the full depth of the Christian experience and understanding of God is to be expressed adequately. No one picture image, or model of God is good enough. And these three models are essential if the basic outlines of the Christian understanding of God is to be preserved. It says the first model is that of a transcendent God who lies beyond the world as its source and creator. The second is the human face of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The third is that of the imminent God who is present and active throughout his creation. The doctrine of the Trinity affirms that these three models combine to define the essential Christian insights into the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. None of them, none of these models, taken on its own is adequate to capture the richness of the Christian experience of God. In relating to Muslims, we Christians must be emphatic in our belief in monotheism. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. At the same time, we believe that this one living God has made himself known by his actions and words recorded in the scriptures. The scriptures reveal to us a God who wants to be in intimate fellowship with human beings. A God whose very being is defined for us as love. A God who is sovereign and powerful and yet suffers with us and for us in our sin and rebellion. A God who is too holy to just dismiss our sin and rebellion and yet, in love, has come close to us to bear the burdens of our sin. This one God, who is our Creator, Savior, and Sanctifier, is the one God whom Christians have called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Christians, unlike Muslims, believe that God's uh, and and just I'm sorry. And since Christians, like Muslims, do not believe that God's being or character changes, we don't believe that God changes through time. His character doesn't develop. We therefore conclude that these actions of God in, in our history do not just tell us about God's relationship with us, but they reflect the reality of who God is from all eternity. So if God has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, if God has revealed himself to us in these acts and dimensions and modes, if God has revealed himself to us in these three persons, this is what God must be like from all eternity. I want to read you a passage, beautiful passage from CS Lewis's Mere Christianity. I want to talk about a little bit about the relevance of this belief. CS Lewis says, you may ask if we cannot imagine a three personal being, that's how he talks about God, three personal being. What is the good of talking about him? Let me read it from the beginning. You may ask, if we cannot imagine a three-personal being, what's the good of talking about him? Well, there isn't any good talking about him. The thing that matters is being actually drawn into that three-personal life. And that may begin anytime, tonight, if you like. What I mean is this. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if he's a Christian, he knows that what's prompting him to pray is also God, in a way, so to speak, from inside him. So basically, a Christian knows he's trying to get in touch with God, and what's from inside him motivating him to get in touch with God is also from God. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray and praying for him. You see what's happening. God is the thing to which he's praying, the goal he's trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motivating power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. When you are praying you are being caught up in the life of the Trinity. When you are worshipping, you are being caught up in the life of the Trinity. Worshipping the Father, because you have the Spirit of God in you, and you're connected to God because of Jesus Christ, His Son. Mm -hmm. Ancient Christian theologians used a a Greek term to describe the Trinity. The term is perichoresis. In English, we get the word choreography from that. For those of you who know how to dance, you got to plan, choreograph your moves. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit are in an eternal dance. And they want you to join Him, to get caught up in the life, in the love, in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lewis continues. I refer to this quote from Lewis in the beginning of our sessions. He says, and that's how theology started. People already knew about God in a vague way. Then came a man who claimed to be God, and yet he was not the sort of man you could dismiss as a lunatic. He made them believe him. They met him again after they had seen him killed. And then after they had been formed into a little society or community, they found God somehow inside them as well, directing them, making them able to do things they could not do before. And when they worked it all out, they found out they had arrived at the Christian definition of the three-personal God. Alistair McGrath makes a similar observation. He says, um, please pay attention, when Christians talk about God, they are not discussing an idea or concept, but an encounter, an experience which they share. He goes on to say, when you're explaining, and listen, this is very important, especially in Muslim evangelism, I believe. When you're explaining what Christianity is all about to your interested friends, you need not mention the word Trinity at all. You speak to them about God and about the way in which God has revealed himself to us and reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. But if you were to sit down and start thinking about the question, what must God be like if he's able to act in this way, you will end up with the doctrine of the Trinity. In other words... The doctrine of the Trinity simply states that God must be like this if he acts in the way in which Christians know that he does. This is the God we've encountered, and this is the God that has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. This is not about the influence of pagan mystery religions. As I said, Christianity didn't start in Egypt or Rome or India. Christianity started among the most devout, monotheistic Jews. But it's the reality of the encounter of these people with God, the reality of our encounter with this God, that has compelled us to speak in in these terms. That we have come to know a God who has revealed himself to us as our Father, as our Creator, as a God above and beyond. We have come to experience in Jesus the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the salvation of God in Jesus, we have come to experience God with us, Emmanuel. And when we have come to believe in Jesus, we have experienced a presence in us, a presence that is changing us, presence that is sanctifying us, and we believe it is God Himself doing that to conform us to the image of Jesus and to draw us closer to the Father. This is our triune God that we have come to believe and worship. It is the most relevant. Doctrine that we can believe as Christians. It is the summary of the entire history of redemption in the Bible. In a nutshell, it's what God has done from Genesis to Revelation. So it's not an extra piece of theological puzzle that we must carry. It is the glorious truth of God that we must daily experience and celebrate. Our time has come to an end in this session. We will continue the next uh, challenge of Islamic theology in our next session. Just to remind you, I said that our basic outline has four points. Islam challenges the Christian view of God. Islam challenges the Christian view of man, especially in regard to man's sin and man's salvation. Islam challenges the Christian view of Christ, his death and his deity. And Islam challenges the Christian view of the scriptures, the authenticity and the authority of the Bible. So in these last few sessions, we have dealt with the question of God, and uh, as I have repeatedly indicated in these past few hours, in talking about the Trinity, we must focus the debate on the character of God. In the next hour, we will pick up our themes and talk about the Islamic view of man, of human fallenness, and human salvation, and how as we Christians, we can respond to the challenge of Islam in that regard.